But of this topic, um, I think people automatically rush into uh, end times because uh, Christ being king always has something to do with the kingdom and that drives us to amillennialism or premillennialism if that's what you're into. Um, but I think, or postmillennialism, I don't want to leave that out for anyone that's uh, in that direction. Um, but I think today's study, we won't go into all that. Um, for one, it's not particularly interesting to me as a person, but um, more importantly, I think we'll get more out of it if we uh, look at what it means that Christ is king. And uh, I think that will be um, helpful. Okay, so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, grateful for your work um, through Christ and through the Spirit, that we are able to benefit from your left and right hand as we are uh, blessed through Christ, that we are able to receive the Spirit, and all because of your love and your will. And we pray for uh, strength today as we think on these things, especially as we think on your Son being our king. We pray for uh, wisdom. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, many, many of you have taken uh, world history, maybe, in high school or college or something. Uh, where my son's going to school, they call it uh, Western, uh, what do they call it? <laughs> History of Civilization, yes. Uh, yes, History of Civilization. And in History of Civilization, what you find in our history is uh, a lot of kings, and then it starts uh, introducing the idea of queens and kings, and then it goes into lots of uh, socialized experiments, um, democracy ends up happening, um, that didn't work out so well, and so then you have America with a republic, which incorporates some democracy in it. Um, and uh, and it, was, it was because of all these uh, different experiments that drove us to where we are today. And I think sometimes we think of uh, kings as something of the past, uh, something of cultures that are less evolved. Maybe they might still have kings, but we, the evolved ones, have a republic. And, um, and we look in the past and we see what happens with kings, right? Uh, some scary things happen, right? Uh, oftentimes religion ends up taking over uh, and the king becomes a slave to uh, some particular religion or the king decides not to be a slave anymore 
and breaks free. And uh, you get what you get with uh, Henry VIII, who decided to stand up to Catholicism uh, because he wanted more wives. But what had happened was uh, it gave us Protestants the opportunity to start slipping in our ideas. <laughs> and then you get, the, uh, you get the Reformation in England. So, um, I say all this because um, I think sometimes because of humans trying to, be, uh, trying to be, have the power that a king has, um, because of our sinful nature... Uh, hasn't always led to great things. Uh, but what we found about sinful nature is that it doesn't matter what kind of government you have. Uh, sinful nature will destroy whatever it can get its hands on. Right? Um, so, what I wanted to introduce to you is what it means for a king to have power. The power of a king. What it means for Christ to have kingship over his people. So we come to Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 1, we are, uh, it's kind of the predestination uh, landing point, right? Uh, this is where the word is used a few times, so it's kind of hard for people to get around that unless they want to become Catholics again and say, well, God was just looking through the quarters of time. Right, And uh, that was a Catholic idea brought about by a guy named Louis de Molina. Um, I always say that bad theology meets in the back door, right? Uh, so we have Protestants saying, no, we are not Catholics. Right? We believe that you cannot get to heaven through works, so they go around. But, unless it's the work of you choosing God. And then they go in the back door of Catholicism. Um, and Ephesians doesn't allow that. So it says, this is how everything started out. Everything started out uh, before the foundation of the world with the Father and the Son making decisions. I might even say they're covenantal decisions, covenantal agreements, that there will be um, a Redeemer, and the people that are redeemed will be chosen even before the foundation of the world. And so this is a way of demonstrating the power of God, right? A lot of people want to make Ephesians 1 about humans. Well, what about human choice and all this sort of thing that the philosophers taught us to care about? But really, this is a demonstration of the power of God. That the power of God is so unique. If I can say so unique. I mean, it's unique. Uh, uh, but so incredibly massive that there is nothing outside of the power of God. And so it goes through what that power looks like. That power looks like uh, God making covenantal choices long before anything's even created. That's an incredible idea. Well, then it goes into the kind of power that is exercised uh, in the individual uh, persons of God. And I want to start in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 15. Um, so it talks about, first of all, how all, this, um, all these covenantal choices that are made long before 
creation is, is found in the love of the Father. And in the love of the Father, he makes these choices with the Son to be the Redeemer of the people for his own glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, uh, in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In the knowledge of him. So before we move on. Who is it. That is giving. That wants to give us. The church. A spirit of wisdom. And of revelation. In the knowledge of him. Who is the one giving this. What was that. The father. Yes. I want you to grasp this. The father is the one who uh, may give us a spirit of wisdom and a revelation of the Father. Okay? So the Father is revealing himself. There's a knowledge that he wants to give us where he reveals himself. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Okay? Now it's interesting he didn't say the eyes of your mind eyes of your heart. Now that's interesting. There's something that Paul is getting at here that isn't just in your brain. But it's something that is an expression of your mind, which is a part of who you are, your heart. Uh, for Paul, your heart was everything that you are, the core thing that makes you you. And as opposed to what Philosophy might say, it's not your mind. We use our mind, right? Have you ever heard someone say that? Use your brain! <laughs> Maybe some of you have said um, So we use it. But who we really are keeps referring back to the heart in Scripture. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. Who's the His? Father, yes. Uh, the hope of his calling, uh, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Still speaking of the Father. And what is the surpassing greatness of his, the Father's, power toward us who believe? So the Father is the one who are talking about his surpassing greatness of his power toward us. So somehow the Father is bestowing some kind of power, right? His power toward us who believe. These uh, are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about... In whom? In Christ. <clears throat> so the Father's might and power toward us is expressed in whom? Christ. Christ. When he, is when, uh, when he raised him, now this is speaking of Christ, he raised him from the dead and sealed Christ 
at, um, I'm sorry, and seated Christ at his right hand in heavenly places. Now I'm saying uh, the actual names instead of the pronouns because the pronouns get kind of confusing. Okay, because Paul says a lot of him and he's, uh, and so you got to stick with the uh, coordinating, the coordinating uh, nouns there. So um, his his might and power is brought about in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things, now we're talking about the Father, and he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is Christ's body, the fullness of, of Christ, who fills all in all. Okay. So I want you to look at 22 and 23. We're going we're gonna to answer a difficult question by the time we're done here. Uh, the Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which... Okay, speaking of the church, is his body. The church is his body. The church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. That's an interesting thing that is said there. So Christ is the head of the church. The church is Christ's body. And the church is the one who is the fullness of Christ. Who fills all in all. Christ is the one who fills all in all. Now these are very bold claims to make in your first chapter of your, of your letter. Um, and it's difficult to understand. How is it that the church is the fullness of Christ? Isn't Christ... I mean, what does even that mean? There is a fullness that is the church. So we will get to that. So I want to make clear a couple things about Christ's kingship. Um, to do that, we need some context. So at the beginning of your paper there, we begin with the Father's provision. This whole, this whole uh, part of Scripture, this whole um, chapter, talking about your salvation before the foundation of the world, talking about the provision of a king, all comes from our Father, who is the provider. The Father's provision of wisdom and knowledge of himself. This is um, verse 17. The Father's provision of wisdom and knowledge of himself. That's our context. How are we getting to know the Father? How is the Father providing wisdom and knowledge of himself? Um... And this is, this is what we want to know. This is the context. So the Father is the one who's going to provide us with wisdom and knowledge of himself. The hope of his calling. So who is the one who calls? God the Father. 
God the Father. Now this is important because what we're trying to get at here is the true triune flavor of Ephesians chapter 1. Christ is not just Christ is just not king in and of himself. He is appointed king. He is provided to us as king by the Father. And this is done so for a specific purpose. So the Father is the one providing the wisdom and knowledge of himself. He is the one that is um, he is the hope of our calling. Right, the riches of his glory in his in his inheritance in the saints. So we are his inheritance. <coughs> right. Um, do you remember John three sixteen? For God so loved the world. Now in that case, um, it's talking about the Father. We can almost say it this way. Uh, For the Father loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever, right? Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Shall not die but have everlasting life. So those are the covenantal grounds, right? Covenantal agreement is whoever believes. So we keep reading in John. We get to John 6, right? Who's the whosoever? Now we go from the covenant conditions to the specific conditions of who will be the whosoever. So who's the whosoever? The believers. Who's the Father gives to the Son. Yeah, whoever is the ones that the Father gives to the Son. That's the whosoever. The whosoever is made into a choice that goes back to this, the calling of the Father. These are, this is the inheritance Right. Um, working for a company that doesn't that uh, doesn't pay very well, I have had to come to the conclusion that uh, my children are going to have to get an inheritance. That is, uh, we're going to have to be we're going to have to be sly about this. So uh, it's not going to be because I'm making a ton of money. But what happened was the Lord let us have a house that we bought at a time that like two years later we could never afford because Greenville just exploded. So by the time I am old, if the Lord allows me to live, uh, by the time I, you know, it'll, I, I think I could last another, what, honey? 30, 40 years, maybe. If I can make it at least another 30 years. I mean, imagine what that house will be worth in 30 years. So Danny... Will uh, sell that house, and he will distribute the money uh, the way our will, if we ever make one, we need to do that, uh, <laughs> tells him to distribute it. Right. So basically, you know, all of our Danny will have to give all the money to Jude, and then uh, <laughs> try to explain to Libby why we didn't give her any. No. Uh, so. Um, so anyway, they'll dis- distribute that inheritance, right? And hopefully it'll be worth something more than uh, just a mere pittance. Pit- uh, what is it? Pittance. <laughs> I can't even say it now. Whatever that word is, yes. More than that. Good. So, 
It's an inheritance, right? It's something you don't want your... You want your kids to have something, right, when you go off. And, uh, you know... So what is the inheritance of the Father, right? What does he give to to his Son as an inheritance? He gives us, the church, right? And gives it to his Son. And in the Son's hands, no one can pull us out of the Son's hands. That's what John 6 is trying to tell us. So, um, as we move down to verse 19... Uh, the surpassing greatness of the Father's power toward us who believe. And these are in accordance with the working of his strength and his might, which he, and this is, the, this is the works that he does, in the strength of his power and might is that he brought about uh, through Christ by raising him from the dead, right? And seating him on his right hand. Now this is... Uh, something John Calvin helped us remember is that we're very visual people. And so when we hear that Christ is sitting on the Father's right hand, um, we might start thinking about chick tracks. Does anyone remember chick tracks? Chick tracks? And how they had the Father. Uh, He had no problem making images of Jesus and the Father. And so the Father was this faceless... uh, white person with light. So you couldn't see his face, but he would always be sitting on this throne. At the right hand, there was Jesus uh, in a little, a smaller throne. The father got a bigger throne. According, uh, Chick tracks were these tracks that this guy made that were very interesting. Um, and so, uh, anyway, he would picture these things. That's not really what's going on here. It's not like there's this big throne for the father and a littler throne for Jesus. On his right hand. Um, This is talking about his position in power. His right hand means that the father is saying, this is my son who is the king. The power is bestowed, right? This is covenantal work. Um, In their essence, right, does this mean that the father is more God than the son? No, there's only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three gods who are distributing power between themselves. Does that make sense? Remember, we, this took a long time when we were talking about this in the Trinity. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the one God we worship and serve. Their divinity is found in the oneness of God. So they're not three gods sharing power. They are the one God. But there are three persons in that one God. And so this is um, covenantal work that they're doing between each other where the Father says you will be the, if I can put it this way, the mediating king between me and my people. The mediating king. And if I could say it the way I'd like to say it is, the covenantal king. Right? We have a covenantal king. Um, So, the father places Christ. He places him in this position. 
And he places him in this position for, remember verse 17, so that we may know whom better. The Father, that's right. So we might know the Father better. Because Christ, as we learned several weeks ago, Christ is the exact image of the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, imagine what he's saying. Uh, If you've seen me, you might have, it's just like seeing the Father. I am the exact image of the Father for you to see, so that you may know the Father through Christ, right? Through me. Um, his surpassing greatness of his power towards us in verse 19 is manifest, if I can put it that way, is brought about through Christ. Okay? So the Father's strength and might is brought about in Christ. That's your, ne- that's your next blank there. And we see this power because the Father raised Christ from the dead, right? And he raised Christ from the dead to be our redeemer of his inheritance. Christ is the redeemer of the inheritance. How is it possible for the Father to even have a people? Because of the fall, it is possible only through his right arm, Christ, redeeming his inheritance. And seating Christ on the right hand makes Christ king. That's your other blank there. With the power of the Father. So the power that Christ exercises as king is the Father's power toward us. Do you see how when someone says that a Muslim serves the same God we do, they just don't know God has a son? Do you see how insane that sounds now? where it is impossible to separate the three persons of the Trinity. The minute you think that they can be separated and parsed out, you have no understanding of the covenantal work of our God. Um, And so all of this is mixed together together in a way that is, I think it's unique in that a lot of times when we talk about Christ being king, we think, I, well, maybe, as it is, I used to think that it's just Christ is king, yeah, because, because he's God, he's king. Um, Christ is God, right? But he became king. That makes sense? When God decided, if we can put it in human terms, God never decides, you know, in his essence, but for us to understand, at some, whatever point means when we're talking about eternity, these are very uh, abstract things when we live in time-space. But at whatever point God um, said, I will create now, 
um, a completely new thing was going on. Right? The minute humans are created, or even decided to be created, an entire different thing had to start happening. Agreements had to start being made. Christ had to start, uh, in these agreements, had to become something he was never before. So Christ became a redeemer when the decision was made that humans would be created. Christ had to, through this agreement, take on flesh. God had never had flesh before, but then took it on. One of the uh, catechism questions uh, we're learning in our training thing is about how Christ took on flesh. God became man. And he, he became, he had these dual natures, right? He was man and God, right, at the same time. And he's doing this forever. It's not like God tried, being, tried on the flesh for a while, said, okay, glad that's over, done with that. When Christ became, took on flesh, it was taking it on forever. What did he do that for? Us. Right? So, um, so moving on. Um, so he, be, he became king with the power of the Father. Christ is king in glory. And if we look back at verse 17, we see that this glory is the Father's glory. The Father wants to be, if I can put it, want. The Father will be glorified. How is he glorified? Through the Son. The Son's glorification is the glorification of the Father because it is through the Son we know the Father. Do you see how these things are so tightly bonded together? And Christ's kingship is Christ's headship over the church. Christ's kingship is Christ's headship over the church. Every time you hear that Christ is head over the church, this, is, this happens all through Ephesians, in fact, even when we get through uh, chapter 5, the uncomfortable part about marriage find that marriage is a picture of this very thing. Christ's headship, his kingship over his people. Um, Paul used headship in chapter 5, but he might as well have said kingship. This is the picture of marriage. So with all this going on, I want you to understand that this isn't Christ's independence. This is covenantal work between the Father and the Son. And you will see that everything the Son is doing is through and in uh, relation to his Father. His power and glory is is the Father's power and glory through the Son. And I want you to think about how, um, how Andrew has been talking about fatherhood. I 
think sometimes we miss the importance of the work that Andrew's doing in trying to help us understand fatherhood. Why would the world hate fatherhood? Look at the covenantal work of the father and son in who they are and their relation to us and how closely tied fatherhood is as the provider of the power and king of his inheritance and the glory that is to be that is to go back to the father through the work of the son is it any wonder that the world hates fatherhood because in the foundation of reality is father and son You understand that. That's not just an interesting thing about God. That's the interesting thing about reality. Reality stands in the relation between a father and a son. It is not what the philosophers have been telling us, that reality is some kind of thing that exists out here and we're looking at land, we look at our hands, we look at podiums, we look at each other, we look at stuff, And stuff and how that stuff interacts with other stuff is reality. And then we have physics. And then physics becomes reality. This is Aristotle. That's not reality. Reality has something to do with something you you wouldn't think of. Reality has to do with the relation between father and son. So if you really want to get at reality and you really want to destroy the reality that has been established by God himself. You don't attack physics. You don't attack stuff. You attack fatherhood. That's at the core of it. That's why it's not just a rant when your pastor is trying to warn you about the world's hatred for fatherhood and how many of us, even in Christianity, has bought into it. In one way or another, Um, we should not be surprised at it. We should be thankful that we have a pastor that's concerned about this because this is the core of even the existence of the church, right? The church cannot exist without a head. And this head is the king. And this kingship is given to us through the provision of our Father and the work of the Son. So Christ... As the mediating king. He's not just a king. He's mediating. This is why all the kings began when Christ established Saul as king. Or when God established Saul as king. Saul was a mediator between God and the people. God would say, Saul, go into this land. Destroy everybody. And what did Saul do? He kept some of the stuff, kept some people alive, kept some of the cows and cattle alive. And God said, you are not a good mediator, right? He said, right, we say, oh, he wasn't a good king. But what we're really saying is he's not a good mediating king. And that's the way the king was supposed to be. This is what made David important as a king. Made a lot of mistakes, a lot of sin. 
But his greatest moments were those moments where he was in full obedience, mediating to his people. Um, so how do we get to this final statement that's so bizarre to us, that, God, that Christ as our king, head of the church, is head over all things to the church, and the church is Christ's body. We're okay with that because we hear this language all throughout Paul's letters. But then we hear him say that this body, the church, is the fullness of Christ. That sounds strange. It sounds like the church is completing Christ. That Christ is somehow incomplete without the church. And we know that that is a heresy to say that God ever relies on his own creation. The minute God relies on his own creation, uh, we've entered uh, either into heresy or we have a God that's not as powerful as we thought he was. Right? We end up with the liberal's God who needs us. Uh, what I always call the, uh, the prom queen God who sits in heaven rubbing his hands together worried whether we're going to choose him or not. And so, that can't be it. We can't have heresy right after one of the greatest doctrines of, our, um, of the Reformation. How is it possible we're slipping into this? <clears throat> well, we know this. This is your next blank there. In essence, Christ is fully complete in himself. For it is Christ who filleth all in all. Right? We know that in verse 23. We know that in Romans 11.33 um, forward. We know that Christ is the one who fills all in all. So how is it possible that we are completing Christ? doesn't make a lot of sense to us. In entering into a covenant with us, right, we have to remember that we're talking about covenantal issues here. This is why when you read a dispensationalist commentary on these verses, it is the most bizarre thing you've ever heard. They are tap dancing all around it because they have no idea what it means. And you can tell they have no idea what it means because they go through all these different lists of what other people have said it means, none of which are right, and then they go with their view, which is also not right. And it's very strange, right? Because they don't know what to do with it. They don't know what to do with John 3.16. Because John 3.16, to their view, is, well, it's whosoever. And then they get to chapter 6, and they're like, this is the same book. And now it's saying that they don't know what to do with it. And why? Because they're not thinking in covenant terms. We think in covenant terms, the Bible starts to make sense, because it's as if God works this way through his people. And through uh, the Trinity uh, specifically in relation to us, which tells us that covenant has at least some image of what the Trinity does on its own. I mean, we have no idea what the Trinity does on its own. It's, it's beyond our thoughts, right? But one thing God does to help us is he says, I'll give you some pictures. It's not exactly, uh, if I told you exactly, you would die. But I can give you a picture, and a picture is what covenant looks like for us, right? And so, in entering into covenant with us, Christ has become the covenant head, the covenantal head. If he's a covenantal head, we're talking about covenantal conditions. 
to be a covenantal head, a group um, of a group, the group is necessary for the title of head to have any meaning, right? You can't be the head of nothing. <laughs> uh, you gotta, if you're going to be the head of something, you have to, something needs to be there. Does that make sense? So in covenantal conditions, once you have a group, if you're going to have someone who's head of that group, that group is necessary for there to be a head of the group. Does this make logical sense to you? I, I'm saying it, but I just want to make sure that you're understanding what I'm saying. Okay. This group is not necessary for the existence of the head, right? But to have the title head of group, group needs to be there. Otherwise, there's an incomplete thing going on. You can't say, I am the head of nothing, because then you're just... Nothing, right? <laughs> you're not a head at all. Um, so to be the head of something, to be the, the head of a covenantal group, the group is necessary to be there. Covenantal agreement means that, in covenant, the body completes the head. Right? As the head completes the body. So, and this is, this is kind of language that Paul uses throughout his epistles. Whenever he talks of Christ being our head, we are the body. These are covenantal ideas. These are pictures that are used. In fact, towards the end of this book, um, Paul will use marriage as a picture to help us understand this about Christ and the church. And he'll say, and here's the great mystery. You think I'm talking about marriage. I'm talking about the church and Christ. Right? And this is all about the covenantal system that God has implanted in the very image that we bear of God. And so this, so uh, one cannot be without the other covenantally. So when it says, let me go back to the verse. I'll read it in a way that we kind of understand. And the Father put all things in subjection under Christ's feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. And because the church and Christ are working covenantally, the church is Christ's body. Because they are a covenantal bond, the fullness of Christ is the church, so that Christ may be the head who fills all in all. Okay? And this is important for us to understand, otherwise we have no idea what to do with this. Right? So this is talking about covenantal terms. Of course God doesn't need a, a, a church. God could have never created it all and been uh, quite content, uh, fully content, in fact, worshipped perfectly within the Trinity, never needing any creation. It is still a mystery why God created it all, to have less perfect worship for eternity than what he could give himself in his own glory between the, the triune being. So John Calvin put it this way. This is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, 
The Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts. Or does he wish to be uh, regarded as complete? Now, of course, this does not mean, right? This isn't talking about Christ needs us. It means in our covenantal relationship, Christ takes that covenantal bond so seriously that he is reckoning himself incomplete without us, covenantally. This covenant is so important to Christ that he is saying, for this covenant to be ratified, I I want my body with me. And you are his body, the church. So it's not... um, One of the difficult things about understanding covenant, it seems so foreign to us as Americans, it's hard to make it personal. How do we make covenant personal? Because it always seems impersonal. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. He's like, okay, sounds good. And that was a covenant. (laughs) Um, And so it seems impersonal because God comes in and says, this is how things are going to be. And the human says, sounds good to me. And that's the covenant. And it seems impersonal. I want you to understand how personal this covenant making is that God does with us to the point where in his covenant with us, he reckons himself incomplete until he has his body. He cherishes you. What does it say about the husband? The husband should love his wife as he loves his body because the husband cherishes his body. Ephesians 5, just a few chapters down. And here's the mystery. Paul's talking about Christ in the church. He cherishes his body. Covenantal work. So let's uh, think about that as we take Christ's body um, at communion today and think on these things as we uh, participate in a covenantal act of communion where there is representation going on of something that is quite spiritual. Um, So I hope that's a help to you in understanding what kind of a king we have. He's personal. And it's not his subjects per se, but his body that he loves. That's That's a great kind of king to have. So let's have a word of prayer, and uh, let me know if you have any questions. I'll be hanging around. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are so grateful to you for your provision of our King. We are thankful for a loving King that loves his body, and that we are able to be that body, and to have such a great head over us who reflects his Father. We thank you for the Spirit who works in our hearts to understand these things, and to even... Conjure in our heart love for our God. We thank you for who you are as our one and only God. Pray for your blessing over uh, today as we uh, think on your son and his sacrifice for us. 
let us have good communion through the Spirit as we take uh, his body and blood. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.